The Asbury Revival, the CDC, the Biden administration, and the World Health Organization. What in the world do these have in common? We cover that and more today on The Grid. The Grid, a digital frontier. I pictured patriots as they moved throughout our country. Do they look like individuals or small business? Were the rallies like church? I keep dreaming of a world I hope to one day see. And then, today, I got in. Hello, fellow Americans. This is Chris Coleman, your host with the Kingdom Patriot Group. Welcome to The Grid, where faith, politics, and commerce intersect. This episode of The Grid is brought to you by America First Insurance Group. America First Insurance Group is America's conservative insurance group committed to providing simple, high-quality, and affordable insurance solutions while fighting tirelessly for the shared values we collectively believe in. America First Insurance Group delivers value and transparency and stands with American patriots to protect our constitutional rights, liberty, and our great nation. A portion of their profits will go back to organizations for veterans and first responders, faith-based organizations, and other organizations that share our values and fight to keep America great. You can find them on the web at americafirstinsurance.org or check out our show notes for this episode. America First Insurance Group, insuring your life, protecting your liberty. Welcome to this week's News and Review, sponsored by the Law Offices of Joshua Coleman. Established in 2015 in the Greater Dallas Metroplex, this firm will handle your criminal defense case and in some circumstances, even a personal injury case. Having worked in the prosecutor's office for four years, they know how the prosecution thinks, works, and assembles a case. Have you been unlawfully arrested for exercising your constitutional rights? Or have you made a mistake and need honest expert representation to navigate your legal options? Then the law offices of Joshua Coleman are for you. I know Josh personally. He's an avid hunter and outdoorsman, and he loves this country that the Lord has blessed us with. Give him a call at 903-574-3789 for a free consultation. Okay, to our news. Well, we have to start off this segment today with the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank, since that was so front and center. It turns out that they're the latest victim of the end of the era of ultra-low interest rates. Now, they have been flush with cash from all kinds of high-flying startups and the like. Silicon Valley Bank has also bought huge amounts of bonds more than a year ago. They kept a small amount of deposits on hand and invested the rest with this hope of earning a return on their investments. Well, that works fine and well until the interest rates go up. Couple that with the startup funding drying up and clients are starting to withdraw their money to fund their own ventures. That puts pressure on the bank. And Silicon Valley Bank was forced to sell off some of its own investments just to meet those demands at a time when the value of those investments had declined. In its surprise disclosure last week, the bank said it lost nearly $2 billion. Well, that news creates fear, and fear creates a run, a run on the bank. So the FDIC had to step in and effectively take over the bank, which will reopen as the National Bank of Santa Clara this week. But that's not the end of the matter. Depositors with more than $250,000, which is the FDIC deposit insurance limit, those depositors with the bank stand to lose much of their money. The bank had about $175 billion in deposits. And the losses may hit the startup scene extremely hard. As the startup business ecosystem tries to make sense of this, some entrepreneurs 
whose funds are frozen at the bank, are actually turning to loans just to make payroll. Well, Silicon Valley Bank provided banking service to nearly half of venture capital-backed technology and life science companies, according at least to its website, which included more than 2,500 venture capital firms. So it's possible this run is going to spread to other banks. Banks tend to borrow short-term because your deposit is really a loan to the bank, and they lend long-term. It means that banks will only have a limited amount of funds to hand back to the depositors at any given moment. So just a quick example of that would be if 100 clients all put $1,000 in the bank, the bank has $100,000. Well, that's short-term because they want to be able to access to that money. Well, the bank turns around and gives someone a $100,000 mortgage. That's long-term. So what happens when a bunch of those depositors say, I want my money back, the bank doesn't have the funds because they're tied up in their own investment. So that obviously creates a problem. If enough of the bank's depositors decide to ask for the money back at once, then the bank can face a liquidity crunch that can, in effect, bring it down. Well, the real concern is what unfolded with lightning speed at Silicon Valley Bank is literally just the first step or the first crack in a financial system triggered by unexpectedly prolonged rise in global interest rates. So this is kind of one lens to look at this, but in reality, the problem is not so much that the rates have risen so high. It's the fact that they were depressed and artificially low for so long. You mess with the price of money, trouble always follows. Well, it seems to me the blame game is in full force. From bad management to the Republicans to Donald Trump, they're all to blame. When bad things happen, we want to find a scapegoat each and every time. And I'll let you decide who is at fault. But when you have inflation running out the wazoo, and then you have to drastically raise interest rates to cool the economy, this is what happens. This is what is going to continue to happen. And you will start seeing this more and more as people and businesses suffer from the economic tsunami. Well, in our next story, Fox News reports that a professor is demanding that black staff get special paid time off to deal with fatigue, trauma, and the like from systemic racism. Well, I just have a comment to that. If we do this, I wonder if I can get time off for having to deal with the trauma of wokeism. In fact, I'm thinking I probably need about 20 years to deal with it. In illegal anti-freedom spying news, apparently the Department of Homeland Security has for years run an almost unknown program gathering domestic intelligence, according to Politico. Under the domestic intelligence program that's run by the DHS office, Officials are permitted to pursue interviews and almost anyone in the United States, including those held in immigration detention centers, local jails, and federal prison. And the purpose of the program is to collect information about threats to the United States. However, they get to tell those who they want to interview, and they have to say to them, hey, it's voluntary. But when they do it, in reality, the DHS goes directly to incarcerated people and others without going through lawyers at all. The inner workings of the program usually is resulting in legally questionable tactics and political pressure, and people working there at the department fear punishment and retaliation for even reporting this. This is all what we've learned. More to come on this. In prosecutorial news, do you remember the St. Louis district attorney that went after the couple who stood on their porch with their AR-15s to protect their house during the BLM riots? Well, it turns out that DA has been shoving aggressive racial equity agendas into daily prosecution decisions using Soros-linked websites and organizations. So what does all that mean? What I mean by that is she literally would use racial equity parameters to determine what cases she would prosecute and which ones that she would completely toss. I guess it's no longer about what is right and wrong, but rather white and non-white. In religious anti-liberty news, a United Kingdom woman was arrested a second time. Why? Because the offense of silently praying outside an abortion clinic. Now, I know this isn't supposed to be 1984, 
But when you are prosecuted for silent prayers, that's taken this to a whole new level. Speaking about taking something to a whole new level, Jill Biden gave a biological male the Woman of Courage Award. Now, I, I'm not even sure how to respond to this. It seems this is going to be a weekly occurrence. And I'm not going to sit here and disparage transgenders on this podcast because I truly believe they have a choice on their lifestyle. But I will go after the ideology and the agenda of the woke left. This is crazy. Should we give Biden the Republican of the Year Award? Or maybe China, the Human Rights Advocacy Award of the Century? Or how about Iran getting the Women's Liberation and Freedom Award? I mean, come on, Jill. Really? You can do better than that. In the most unexpected news of the week, Biden is expected to approve enormous oil drilling project in Alaska. Now, I think the climate activists would view this as ultimate betrayal. So I still think there's time for Joe to wake up and derail this. But hopefully, even he's not stupid enough to derail our energy for the next decade. Well, well, at least I don't think he is. Okay, folks, I've been saying for a long time, what liberals can't get through legislation, they attempt to get through the courts. Quick Constitution 101 says this, the legislative branch passes the law, the executive branch executes the law, the courts interpret the law. But because the ends justify all means, the libs often try and get the courts to create law, commonly referred to as legislating from the bench. Well, this is now the new tactic regarding the Second Amendment. Progressive lawyers are openly talking about using public nuisance lawsuits to outlaw guns. That just means suing everywhere, all the time, in every circumstance. And why? Because people and businesses will not be able to defend themselves because the cost of time and the cost of money to do so. These nuisance lawyers will win by default. We have got to stop this. Okay, now in our proper noun becomes a verb segment, Oklahoma Christians win a major fight on marijuana. In fact, every county in Oklahoma rejected the bid to make marijuana legal. That's not the funny part. It's actually what they said. This is what they said. Don't California our Oklahoma. You heard it here first on the grid. That's how California became an official verb. Okay, in our last news story, this is so encouraging, and it's found in Christian Entertainment News. A biblical film is hitting the theaters just in time for Easter. It's breaking all kinds of records for its successful crowdfunding model. The movie's called His Only Son, and it calls itself biblically accurate based on the story of Abraham and Isaac. This is the first time a theatrical release has been crowdfunded in entertainment history, according to Angel Studios. It took five years to make this film on one of the most controversial passages in Scripture, where God asks Abraham to sacrifice his son as a burnt offering. Well, apparently the crowdfunding for the film reached its goal and capacity in 100 hours. So Angel Studios responded to audience demand by more than tripling the theater count nationwide. Folks, people are hungry for Christ. They're hungry for Christian principles. They're hungry for Christian entertainment. Way to go. That is so awesome to hear. I'm so excited. Very, very encouraging. For this week's News and Review, that's a wrap. So let's start in reverse order. Let's start with Biden and the World Health Organization. We actually discussed this story last year, and there was so much blowback that Biden actually backed off to some degree, but now it's resurfaced. The story I'm talking about is the Biden administration preparing to sign the United States to a legally binding accord with the World Health Organization that would give this UN subsidiary the authority to dictate the U.S. policies during a pandemic. Let that sink in for just a second. 
So HHS Secretary Javier Becerra had discussions with the WHO Director General Tedros Adhanaman Ghebreyesus, I think is how you pronounce the name, that led to this thing called this Zero Draft, this draft of a pandemic treaty published on February the 1st. It seeks now ratification by all 194 WHO member states, and that that meeting took place on February the 27th to finalize some of those terms that then the members will ultimately sign. So written under the guise of, hey, the world together equitably, love that word, this draft grants the WHO the power to declare and manage a global pandemic emergency. And once a health emergency is declared, all signatories, including the United States, would submit to the authority of the WHO regarding treatments, government regulations such as lockdowns, vaccine mandates, global supply chains, and monitoring and surveilling of populations. In fact, I read in one place that actually we would have to turn over as much as 20% of our treatments and vaccines to be used throughout the globe before we even treated our own citizens. So just to reiterate, the WHO gets to decide what is a health emergency, and they are putting in place surveillance mechanisms that will ensure that there are potential emergencies to declare. So really, there's a two-track effort here. You got one with the WHO, but it coincides with an initiative by the WHA, which is the World Health Assembly, to create these new global pandemic regulations that would supersede the laws of the member states. Now, they're using terms of member states, but let me be clear. They would supersede the laws of the countries that are members of the WHO. Now, the WHA is the rulemaking body of the WHO, and it's comprised of representatives from the member states. Those two are linked hand-in-hand. Both initiatives would set up worldwide medical police that could make it all the way down to your primary care physician. In fact, one physician commented after reading these, if these rules go through as currently drafted, I as a doctor will be told what I'm allowed to give a patient, what I am prohibited from giving a patient, and whenever the WHO declares a public health emergency, I have to follow suit. So they can tell you that you're getting remdesivir, but that you can't have hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin. What they're also saying is that they believe in equity, which means everyone in the world gets to get vaccinated, whether or not you need it, whether or not you already have natural immunity. So as far as medical treatments go, this agreement would actually require member nations to monitor and regulate against substandard and falsified pandemic-related products. So as I was reading this, in English, what does that mean? Some believe this would likely include forcing populations to take newly developed vaccines while preventing doctors from prescribing non-vaccine treatments or medicines. So agree or disagree with the items themselves, there's a huge constitutionality problem here. Why? Because a key question is whether the Biden administration even has an authority. Can they even bind America to treaties and agreements without the consent of the U.S. Senate, which is actually required under our Constitution? Well, the draft concedes that per international law, treaties between countries must be ratified by national legislatures, thus respecting the right of the citizens to consent. However, the draft also includes a clause that the accord will go into effect on a provisional basis as soon as it is signed by delegates to the WHO, and therefore it will be legally binding on members without being ratified by legislatures. So again, to kind of put that in English, what they're saying is as soon as the representatives of each government sign on to this, it becomes legally binding, recognizing, hey, it still needs to be ratified by treaty. But this is kind of like the Biden administration putting in a regulation that possibly is unconstitutional, but until it makes its way through the courts and is blocked, it's technically in force. 
Same kind of situation. So one person commented, whoever drafted this deliberately did so to circumvent the power of the Senate to give its advice and consent to treaties, to provisionally bring it into force immediately upon signature. In addition, the Biden administration is touting this as an international executive agreement that the president can conclude of his own accord without the approval of the Senate. And it is binding on the United States of America, including all state and local democratically elected officials, governors, attorney generals, and health officials. I, for one, am telling you he does not have the authority to do this. You can call it semantics. You can call it an agreement versus a treaty. He does not have the authority to do this. Well, let's continue. The zero draft, that's again what this is called, stated that this new accord is necessary because of the catastrophic failure of the international community in showing solidarity and equity in response to the coronavirus disease pandemic, COVID-19. I got a comment on that. I think the catastrophic failure actually pertains to the integrity of China and other government bodies, even like our own CDC, for example. When you lie to the people, when you lie to the sources of this virus, when you lie when people ask if it's gotten out or if it's spread, of course you're going to have a catastrophic failure. You can't regulate integrity, folks. And in many ways, that is what this is attempting to do. Let's continue. So signatories also agree to support the official narrative when it comes to information about a pandemic. Whoa. Let's, let's dive into that. Specifically, they will conduct regular social listening and analysis to identify the prevalence and profiles of misinformation, and that they will design communications and messaging strategies to the public to counteract misinformation, disinformation, and false news. Therefore, they will strengthen the public trust. That's what they're saying. When we hear something that we think is wrong, then we're going to put an entire strategy around communicating to basically squash it. This should scare the pants off of you. This is nothing more than an international ministry of truth, pure and simple. Do you remember the podcast we did on the Great Barrington Declaration that pushed back on this public narrative of lockdowns? Did you know that more than 900,000 doctors, epidemiologists, and public health scientists jointly signed this declaration in 2020, expressing grave concerns about the damaging physical and mental health impacts of the prevailing COVID-19 policies? This declaration was wildly shut down and derided as dangerous misinformation, and it was completely censored on social media. In fact, the only reason I even heard about it is because I read it in Hillsdale's regular published article called The Imprimis. So under the WHO and these regulations, the Great Barrington Declaration would have completely been shut down on a global scale. It would have been silenced. People likely would have even been prosecuted. Okay, so why in the world am I on this tirade about the WHO and the pandemic since it is over? Well, that's a great question, and I will answer it when I return. I'm so glad you asked how you can help for free. Subscribe or follow The Grid and set your phone out for automatic downloads. You'll have immediate access to each new episode, and you'll help us appear at the top of your podcast platform search list. This makes The Grid easier for everyone to find. From all of us at the Kingdom Patriot Group, thank you for joining us in the fight for faith and freedom by subscribing to The Grid. Okay, now to answer your question why I've gone down this rabbit trail. Well, it's a local story that actually prompted this. The CDC reported this last week that a case of measles at the Asbury Revival in Kentucky came about. 
And so they got this from the Kentucky Department of Health. It was one case of measles. Here's what was reported. The agency, that'd be the CDC, said Friday that the Kentucky Department for Public Health identified a confirmed case of measles in an unvaccinated person who attended the religious gathering on February 17th to 18th at Asbury University in Wilmore, Kentucky. People from Kentucky and other states and other countries attended the event. This article continued, for, uh, announcement, I should say, from the CDC. The person potentially exposed an estimated 20,000 people to the infectious virus, according to the CDC. The infected individual recently traveled internationally. So first of all, I find it interesting that the report singled out an unvaccinated person. I don't even know why that's important. If a person has the measles, a person has the measles. It's irrelevant if the carrier is vaccinated or not. So, folks, the revival that's going on with our youth is stunning. And that is the central part of the story. And I'll make the connection for you in just a moment. It has spread all over the nation. The enemy has had near unlimited reign for the hearts and minds of our youth for decades. And now the Lord is bringing spiritual awakening. He is he's bringing revival to these youth. It is awesome. It's stunning. And it's amazing. Thank you, Jesus. But as we talk about that, how do these stories intersect? Well, the CDC actually issued a health alert because of this. And in theory, the CDC is mostly a recommending body, not one that has broad regulatory authority. But let's fast forward, or should I say fast backwards, to the WHO that we were just talking about. And I think you begin to see how the enemy, how the end times, how the Antichrist can flex control over the population, including squashing revivals. What if the CDC works in conjunction with the WHO and declares a measles pandemic? What if the WHO, with the authority that they now have, that they now have assumed, I should say, declares that there's no religious gatherings allowed of more than 20 people, unless you're vaccinated? Or you can have them, but in order to monitor you, the WHO says you've got to first register an event and that all the attendees have to be tracked at a later date in order to make sure that there's no pandemic or we get a pandemic under control, part of that monitoring and surveillance that we saw in the draft of the WHO. I think you can see how easy it is, one baby step at a time, how the path of destruction can be paved. Whether it's the WHO or the CDC or the federal government, what we see over and over is attempts to control the population. That control is at the heart of the spirit of the Antichrist. We read in Revelation that no one will be able to buy or sell without the mark of the beast. And as Sean used to say, the implementation of this control is going to come through commerce. But I think we're beginning to see that the framework for that is going to come through public health via fear. Now, I would be remiss as well if I didn't mention this. I'm not trying to scare you. I'm not trying to scare anyone. I'm just trying to make you aware. Jesus is still on the throne, and when we live in fear, we are not operating from faith, which is what I implore you to do. We must be faithful, we must speak the truth, but we cannot do it by living in fear. Share the gospel boldly, and as we discussed last week, write letters, contact your leaders, make sure that your voice is heard loud and clear. Make sure you share this podcast with your friends and neighbors. Tell them to listen to The Grid so that we can get the word out so that we can make our voices heard. One person cannot speak loud enough, but thousands and millions of us speaking up for truth, we absolutely can make our voices heard. Till next time.
Thanks for joining us for today's edition of The Grid. And special thanks to our sponsor, America First Insurance Group. Be sure to visit our website at kingdompatriot.us to join the movement of faith and freedom. That's kingdompatriot.us. Join today so that together we can make a difference. Your membership is appreciated, your input is valued, and your voice is needed. I'm Chris Kuhlman, and I am a Kingdom Patriot.